Well, good evening, uh, friends. It's lovely to join you again this evening. And I'd like to ask you to turn, please, to the Gospel of John, to the Gospel of John and to chapter 14, please. The Gospel of John and chapter 14. <laughs> Thanks very much for the warmth of your welcome and for your hospitality thus far. And it really is a pleasure to be with you this week. And um, thank you for the invitation to join you. It's really a, a pleasure and a privilege always to look at the Gospel of the Lord Jesus. We're here this evening because we want to uh, hear about the gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we want to look into God's word and to see what it would tell us once again about this most amazing of, of tales, this most amazing of stories, this most amazing of facts, the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And I wonder this evening if I could just begin with a question before we read uh, from God's word tonight. I wonder if I could just ask you a question, and I don't know very many of you. I've met one or two of you before, and I'm staying with David and Hazel, but I don't know any of you very closely. But let me just ask you a, a personal question this evening, if you'll allow me. And uh, my caveat to the question is this. I want you to answer it absolutely honestly, please. If you could answer it absolutely scrupulously honestly in your heart, and uh, don't say it out loud, of course, just say it in your heart. And the answer you give will be known only to two the answer you give will be known to yourself and to God, nobody else. And God knows the right answer. And that is this evening, as you sit here, points past uh, Baptist Church here, 2023, where do you stand with the Lord Jesus Christ? Where do you stand with him? And is he your saviour? Would you be able to hand on heart say tonight, yes, I have accepted Jesus Christ is my Lord and my Saviour, and I love him tonight, and I'm born again by the Spirit of God, and I'm able to say, yes, I belong to Jesus this evening. I wonder if that's your answer. I know that that would be the answer that many of you would give, and there'd be people here tonight who would say, well, Ian, if you were to ask me, what does Jesus Christ mean to me? You know, if I was to give you a piece of paper and a pen this evening, and to say to you, could, could you please write down for me, what does the Lord Jesus mean to you? I know there would be people here this evening who would say, well, can I have some more paper, please? Can I have another pen, a, a refill of ink? Because the Lord Jesus means everything to me. He's my master. He's my savior. He's my closest friend. And I just can't imagine life without him. But there might be people here this evening who would say, well, at one time I would have spoken in those sort of terms. But just this evening, I'm just not quite so sure where I stand with him. Or there might be somebody here this evening who says, well, I don't know. I don't really know where I stand with Jesus. Or there might be people here this evening who say, well, I don't really want to have much to do with him, thanks. I don't want him as my saviour. And I would like to leave this evening in the same way I came. Well, let's look at John chapter 14 then. And I'd like to look just at the first few verses of this chapter. John chapter 14. And we'll read the first seven verses. The Lord Jesus says this, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And whither I go, ye know, and the way ye know. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? 
Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also, and from henceforth ye know him, and have seen him. Amen. And God will add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's just pause for a moment and ask for the Lord's help as we continue. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, there is no greater, no greater news than the gospel of the Lord Jesus. There is no greater thing that could occupy our minds this evening than the fact that you, in, in thy love, have sent the, the Saviour, the Lord Jesus, into this world to die on the cross of Calvary, that men and women, boys and girls, even today, can be saved of all of their sin and know the certainty of heaven in the future. Father, we are so grateful uh, to be beneficiaries of the gospel this evening, those of us here who know and love thy Son and have come to know and love thee. We thank thee for the beauty of the gospel, for the joy it brings us, for the wonderful privilege of knowing thy Son and following him day by day. But we pray this evening that if there's anybody here tonight who is outside of Christ, who's never yet accepted him as Lord and Saviour, and as of this evening isn't born again, O Lord, we cry out to thee tonight. Father, would they be saved this evening? And would they realize their need of a saviour? And would they realize that they too are sinners, just like the rest of us? And that, Father, that they need a saviour and that a saviour has been provided, the Lord Jesus. And that there is a way back to God from the dark paths of sin. And so we thank thee tonight, Father, for this gospel and ask for thy help to make it known in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, I wonder if you've ever walked into a room and uh, you don't know quite what's gone on in that room, you don't know quite what's transpired, but you can tell there's an atmosphere. There's an atmosphere in that room. Something's been said, something's happened, and you could sort of cut the air with a knife when you walk into that room. I'm sure we've all been in that situation. Well, As you come in with me into the upper room in Jerusalem, where these verses are set, I want you to imagine coming in with me into that upper room, and there would be quite some atmosphere. There would be quite some atmosphere. Because three stunning events have taken place. The Lord is with his disciples in the upper room. This is a section of John's Gospel that's often called the upper room ministry. It runs from John 13 to John 17. And three remarkable things have happened. The first is that the Lord Jesus, who is claiming to be the son of the true and living God, God himself in human form, has taken a towel and a basin and he's knelt and he's washed the dirty, dusty, dry feet of his disciples, Judas Iscariot included, who would go on to betray him. That's the first thing that's happened. And the disciples have struggled to get their minds around this, that the the one who is the son of God, the one for whom and through whom the world was made, has washed their feet. Secondly, it's been revealed that one of their number would go on to betray the Lord Jesus. So they've all been listening to him and hanging on his every word and witnessing his miracles and traveling with him all over the country and seeing remarkable things. And yet one of them would go on to betray his savior, go on to betray the Lord Jesus. And then Judas Iscariot has made his departure from the room. So those two things have already taken place. And thirdly, it's then revealed that even Peter 
Even Peter is so central to that group of disciples, when it comes down to the crunch moment, is going to deny his Lord. Now at this point we walk into the room and we can sense the atmosphere and you can cut it with a knife and we ask the question, what is the Lord Jesus going to say next? In that sort of atmosphere, what is the Lord Jesus Christ going to say next? And briefly, because we're going to look at this briefly and then focus on one particular phrase, briefly he brings three things to his disciples in those moments. He brings comfort and he brings confidence and he brings clarity. Comfort, confidence, and clarity. First of all, he says in verse 1, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. He brings us back, he brings his disciples back to that unchanging, un, unchanging antidote to anxiety, God himself. You believe in God, therefore also you believe also in me. It's impossible, isn't it, of course, to believe in God, the true God, the God of the Bible, and not to accept the testimony of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Brings us back to God. Joshua 1 verse 9. Do not be afraid. Do not be ashamed. uh, For the Lord your God is with you. Brings us back to God. And he introduces this image of the father's house. I remember I was able to spend a, a while in Israel, maybe about eight weeks, nine weeks or so in Israel, about six or seven years ago. Um, and I worked at a place called the Garden Tomb as a tour guide. Uh, but before I did that, um, I was on a little course of New Testament geography. I went and did some map work and things like that. And we were taken to various historical sites. It was really, really fascinating. And I know that some of you, I think, have been to Israel. And maybe if you have the opportunity to go, I really would just implore you to go because you won't regret it. But I remember being taken to this particular place. And I was a bit confused, I have to be honest, about why we were going there. What was the significance of this location? I didn't recognize the name of it. I didn't recognize anything about it from the scriptures. And I was wondering, why have we been taken to this particular place? And all it was was a domestic house, the ruins of a domestic house, a farmhouse. And you could see, I'm not not an expert in archaeology by any means, but you could see, anybody could see, uh, the original dwelling, because that was the oldest form of stone. You could see the, the oldest stones, and you could see the original farmhouse, the outline of it, in the dust. But what was significant was that over time you could see additions had been made. Additions had been made, extensions had been put on here and there and at the front and at the back and then an extra outhouse here, an extra outbuilding there and the stones got more and more modern as time went by. And what the tour guide was illustrating was the principle of the father's house. That there was the original farmhouse, the original farm dwelling and as that farmer would have sons, those sons would then go out into the world and mature and find wives. And then when they found those wives, they would say, now I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going back to my father's house and I'm going to make a dwelling place there, maybe an extension to his home or maybe an outbuilding in the same compound. I'm going to make a place for you and me to, to start our married life together and I'll come back for you and I'll bring you back to the father's house. There was no limit to the additions that could be made. No limit to the rooms that could be added to the father's house. And the Lord Jesus Christ is making very clear here, he's going to prepare a place for us. Going to prepare a place for those who know and love the Lord Jesus. Now he brings this sense of comfort. I am going, but I am returning. I wonder tonight if I could ask you, do you believe that Jesus was here upon the earth? Do you believe that Jesus really existed, that he really was here historically? Almost nobody disbelieves that. Almost nobody disbelieves that. 
But I wonder if you believe what he said. I wonder if you believe that he's coming back. I do. And I know that the people in this church do. I wonder if you really believe that he's coming back. And I wonder if you do believe that he's coming back, are you ready for that? Are you prepared for it? Well, he brings comfort, first of all. I'm going away, yes, but I'm coming back. And then he brings a sense of confidence. Look at verse 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. I will come again and receive you unto myself. We touched on this this morning, but there is in the wider church, sadly, a lack of confidence in teaching about the Lord's return. And it's something that I know that you emphasize here, and that's a wonderful thing, something to be very grateful for and to hold on to uh, with all your heart, because there is a, a lack of confidence more widely in this teaching. Uh, sometimes people think it's too complicated, or they think they can't understand it, or that it's not important, and it's not relevant, and it doesn't really mean anything to us. And yet, for Christians who know and love the Bible and know and love the Lord Jesus, they just are longing for that day when the Lord Jesus will fulfill his promise and return as he said he would, and we will see him face to face. The scriptures don't present a confusing or obscure picture about his return. Every word is carefully weighed by Christ. And here in chapter 14, he's speaking about his return. And he says, if I go, and I studied law at university Uh, We looked at contracts, and of course, human beings break contracts all the time. Uh, If that wasn't true, there'd be no work for contract lawyers, but there's plenty of work for contract lawyers. Uh, We break our promises. We break our contracts. God never does. And here the Lord Jesus makes a condition. He says, and if I go. So there's a condition to the contract, if I go. Well, he was true to that. The Lord Jesus Christ did go. If I go and prepare a place for you, I might come again. No. No. Perhaps I will come again. No. I will come again. This is 100% guaranteed, brothers and sisters. And the Bible has proved itself true time and time and time again. And the question I would want to ask you tonight is, are you prepared to believe this? Are you prepared to believe that Jesus Christ will come again as he promised? And that the Bible teaches very clearly that he could come again tonight. And the question is, are you ready if he were to do so? if you were to come again this evening. Now, I just want to make very clear here that we're dealing in John 14 with what we call the rapture of the church. We're not going to take much time to go into this at this moment in time. Uh, But we're not dealing here with the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to establish his kingdom. That's something distinct. Sometimes people who would criticize uh, the position that this church and that I myself take on the Lord's return, would say, you know, you people at at places like Points Pass and at places like Albert Hall Assembly in Renfrew, where Rebecca and I go, people like you, you believe in two second comings. You you believe that Jesus Christ is coming back uh, in in what you call the rapture and that then he's coming back again to rule and to reign. That's, That's two second comings, surely. And we say, no, no, one second coming in two stages. One second coming in two stages. The Lord Jesus Christ is only coming back one time, a second time. And yet that is going to occur in two distinct stages. One when he comes to take those who know and love him home to the Father's house. And again when he comes with those who know and love him to establish his rule and his reign. Look with me at the, at the language in John 14. At the end of verse 3, the Lord Jesus says something very significant. His final, the final phrase of the last sentence there says that where I am that where I am there ye may be also 
I just want to zoom out, as it were, and look at the pattern of the Bible, just for a moment. Back to the very beginning. God created man, Adam and Eve, and we read that God was able to walk with Adam, walking in the cool of the day. There was a relationship of harmony, but God came down to dwell with man. God is a God of heaven, and yet he came down and was able to converse with man. So God came down. And then, of course, what we have is the sad parting of the ways between the the creator and the creature in the fall of mankind, and we'll speak about that in a moment or two. But God begins a project of redemption, a project of rescue, through one unique nation, the nation of Israel. And he says, I want you to build me a tabernacle. I want you to build me a place of worship that's going to be mobile, that's going to be able to move with you through the wilderness. And if you build it according to the pattern that I show you on the mountain, I'll come down and dwell with you. And they do so. They build the tabernacle in detail according to God's plan. And he's true to his word. And God comes down and dwells in the tabernacle. So God came down to the Garden of Eden and God came down to the tabernacle. And then later when Solomon is given the privilege of building the temple, the Shekinah glory of God again comes down from heaven. And we take ourselves all the way forward to the glorious incarnation of the Lord Jesus. And what do we find at Bethlehem's manger? God has come down. God has come down to that manger in Bethlehem. And there's the person of the Son of God. And he's come down to be with us. And we turn our eyes forward to the far future. And we remember that one day, the holy city of the New Jerusalem is going to come down out of heaven from God. And the dwelling place of God is going to be with man. And God is going to come down again. That's the pattern. Apart from one distinct promise. One distinct, unique promise that God made only to one group of people. And that is those who know and love the Lord Jesus. And I wonder tonight if you're amongst them. I wonder tonight if you would count yourself amongst those who know and love the Saviour, who are Christians, who are born again. Because the Lord Jesus here in John 14 and elsewhere, but here uh, in a lovely clear way, the Lord Jesus made this promise. I'm going to prepare a place for you and I'm going to come again. Not that where you are, I may come down to you, but that you may be with me where I am, that you may be with me where I am. It's a unique promise, it's a distinct promise. And we notice that it it breaks the pattern of the Bible. The pattern of the Bible is God comes down, but here his people are to go up to be with him. This is what we call the rapture of the church. And I wonder if you're prepared for that and if you would be included in that wonderful event that's coming. And again, it could come later today. Why does the Lord Jesus want us to be with him? Now, if you knew everything about me, if you knew everything I'd ever done and said and thought, if it was all put in some pamphlet and passed around the church tonight, you wouldn't want to be with me. You wouldn't want to have fellowship with me. And I'm sure that if I knew everything about you, perhaps it might be the same. God knows everything about us. God knows everything about us, everything we've ever done and said and thought is known to him in intricate detail. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And yet it amazes me in John chapter 17, we get an insight later, the last chapter of the upper room ministry. Why does the Lord want us to be with him? People like you and me, sinful people who've been redeemed, but why would he want to spend eternity with us? John 17, uh, verse 24, in his high priestly prayer The Lord says this, Father, 
I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am. Why? That they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. Friends, what will we, believers in the Lord Jesus, what will we be occupied with? What will we be thinking about? What will we be focused on in eternity when we're with the Saviour? Well, we'll be focused on the Saviour. We'll be beholding his glory. That's why the Lord Jesus wants us to be with him. And during those awful days of tribulation, when trouble of a, of a level unparalleled in human history will be unfolding on the face of the earth, we will be in the Father's house and we will be beholding the glory of the, the true and living God and of his Son, the Lord Jesus. Isn't that a wonderful thing? What an amazing future lies ahead of us if we know and love the Saviour. But let me ask you again, is that you tonight? Are you a Christian? Have you become a Christian? Have you placed your faith and trust in Jesus personally? He brings comfort and he brings confidence. I will come again. And then he brings crystal clear clarity. Turn back to John 14 and we go to Thomas. And Thomas' question, we can always rely on Thomas to ask for clarity. And then we hear the Lord's famous answer in verse 6. Now, uh, some of you know, maybe I don't know if all of you know, uh, before I left secular employment to serve the Lord full time, I worked at Buckingham Palace in London in the private secretary's office there. And, um, and so when the, the, queen, the late queen died, I was watching the funeral, of course, and it was very moving for me um, because, of course, I knew some of the people involved. I was at a very junior level, let me stress that. Um, but uh, when the funeral party came down the mile, you had the staff, uh, many of the staff lining the, the pavement outside the palace. I don't know if, if you saw that. And I would know a lot of them and, and have worked with a lot of them. And it was a very poignant moment for me. But of course, there was the funeral service as well. And it was remarkable for me, the Queen having chosen, of course, personally, the, the passages to be read. Absolutely remarkable experience for the then Prime Minister of our country, uh, Liz Truss, to read these verses out. And I would say, I, I would be willing to say that probably it is the time in human history ever when these words have been heard by the most people that will ever hear these words. I can't envisage a time when they'll be heard by more people all at once. Approximately five billion people tuned into that funeral service and heard these words. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. I was deeply moved to hear that being read in our country in this day and age. A statement of absolute clear exclusivity. Points past Baptist Church, the little assembly that me and my wife belong to in Renfrew, we do not exist to offer the people of our district an option, a lifestyle choice. You know, would you like to add Christianity to your portfolio of interests? Would you like to, to add an extra hobby to your life called Christianity? Would you like to accept Jesus as an added optional extra to your life and to your experience and enrich your lives with Jesus? No, we are saying, we are saying with, with clarity to the people of this district and, and where we live to, we're saying to them, there is only one saviour for all sinners for all time. Only one. And a God of infinite love Knowing everything about you, friends, 
knowing all that there is to know about you and me, has, because of his love, the strength of that love, provided a saviour. And he's given his son, his only son, to die a shameful and humiliating death on the cross of Calvary that you and I, by simple faith and trust, can accept that saviour as our own, be forgiven of all of our sin, and come into a relationship with God Almighty. My friends, I think that's an amazing message. An absolutely remarkable message. And that's the message that points past Baptist Church wants to get out to the district. That's the, the message I'm passionate about sharing with others. Is that there is only one saviour for all sinners for all time. He's called Jesus Christ and he's the most wonderful person that there ever has been. And every true Christian in this hall tonight would say to you, if you're not saved this evening, they would say to you, oh, trust him. Take him as your own. Because you will never, ever regret it. It is the most wonderful thing to follow Jesus. I could ask any Christian here tonight, would you give him up? If I was to give you a million pounds tonight, if I was to give you the the biggest house in Northern Ireland, if I was to offer you the most lucrative position in Northern Ireland, and I said to you, all you had to do is denounce Jesus and say that you're never going to follow him again and you're going to give up believing in Christ. There's not a single Christian in here tonight who'd shake my hand and do that deal. Every single born-again Christian here tonight would say, you must be joking. You must be joking. I would take Jesus over anything because he means everything to me. And if tonight you don't know him, you can leave here tonight knowing him. And I just beg you that you would because your eternity staked on it and you'll go to hell without him. You will. He brings comfort and confidence and absolute clarity. No man comes to the Father but by me. There isn't another way. Let me just focus as we begin to draw our thoughts to a close on one particular phrase that the Lord Jesus Christ draws out. In John 14, he says this, I go to prepare a place for you. I go to prepare a place for you. What does it mean? What does it mean for the Lord Jesus Christ to prepare a place for us? Well, I would like to do a little bit of detective work in our Bibles and go back to the book of Genesis, please, and chapter 2. Back to the book of Genesis and chapter 2. I go to prepare a place for you, said the Lord Jesus. And we take our minds back to the very beginning and we remind ourselves of things that transpired there. Genesis chapter 2, and let me read from verse 7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we could read on, but we'll stop there for the moment. All I want to observe with you tonight is this, brothers and sisters. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. Here's what I want you to remember, that God prepared a place. God prepared a place for mankind. And it was a perfect place. It was absolutely suited and suitable for God and man to live in harmony together. God prepared a place for mankind. 
And he designed it and carefully prepared it and made it and made it ready for man. And he created man to live in it. And this place was a place of innocence and a place of harmony and a place of perfection. God prepared a place for mankind. And yet, of course, that place was forfeited because of human sin. That place was forfeited because of human sin. And the fall occurs and, of course, Adam and Eve uh, submit to the principle of sin and they end up outside of the garden. And their way back into the garden is barred by the cherubim, by this angel and the flaming sword. And it seems impossible. It seems like an impossible situation and we're only two chapters into our Bibles. But the whole of the rest of scripture is there, isn't it? To tell us how it can be possible that mankind can be brought back into relationship with God. Because it's not hopeless. So man in his sin is outside of a relationship with his creator. Outside of the garden, God prepared a place for man in Eden. And yet it was lost. Forward a little to Exodus. Now, don't worry, we're not going to go through the Bible book by book. But just Genesis and then on to Exodus. And verse uh, chapter 23, please. Exodus chapter 23. God is beginning his relationship of redemption with the nation of Israel, the Jewish nation. And he says to them this, Exodus 23, verse 20, Behold, I send an angel before thee to keep thee in the way and to bring thee into the place which I have prepared. To bring thee into the place which I have prepared. In Deuteronomy chapter 11, you don't need to turn there, but in Deuteronomy chapter 11, we learn about this place, the sort of land that God was calling them into. Verse 10, for the land whither thou goest in to possess is not as the land of Egypt from whence he came out, where thou sowest thy seed and waterest it with thy foot as a garden of herbs. But the land whither ye go to possess is a land of hills and valleys, and drinketh water of the rain of heaven, a land which the Lord thy God careth for. The eyes of the Lord thy God are always upon it from the beginning of the year, even unto the end of the year. God prepared a place for man in the Garden of Eden, a perfect place. A suitable place. A place for harmony. And yet it was forfeited because of human sin. God then prepares a place. The place, Canaan, this land flowing with milk and honey. A place for God's people. And there in that land of promise they could dwell and they could prosper. And they could live according to God's rules and laws and please him. And yet of course what do we find? That again, uh, going back to ownership and possession as we studied it this morning... God's people have always owned the land of Israel, but they failed to possess it, and they were denied possession of it and taken off into exile. Why? Because of sin. The very same sin, that very same satanic force, that mankind, uh, that because of sin, mankind found itself outside of the Garden of Eden. Now God's people find themselves outside of the land of promise, the place prepared for them. Turn back with me to John 14. And let's just cast our eyes Let's just cast our eyes to the few verses that come before our chapter. John 13, and reading from verse 36, John 13. Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, whither goest thou? Jesus answered him, Whither I go, thou canst not follow me now, but thou shalt follow me afterward. Just before we move on, You remember the beginning of the relationship between this man and his saviour, between Simon Peter and the Lord Jesus, there by the shores of the Sea of Galilee. The Lord Jesus had said, follow me. 
Follow me. A man's life transformed by two words, follow me. I wonder tonight, friend, if you've ever heard those words from the Savior to your own heart. Follow me. Well, Peter did, and he became a follower of the Lord Jesus. He was still a fisherman, still often a failure, but he became a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet there comes a point here in John 13 where the Lord says to that very man that he'd asked, uh, he'd said to him, will you follow me? He says, no, there's somewhere I'm going and you can't follow me. I'm not asking you to follow me. In fact, I'm telling you that where I'm going, you cannot follow me because the Lord was going to the cross of Calvary. And there upon the cross of Calvary, the Lord Jesus was going to engage in a work which he would have to engage in absolutely alone. Absolutely alone. The Lord Jesus Christ was totally alone when he bore my sin upon the cross of Calvary. And his father's face in heaven turned away from him as he bore my sin in his own body on the tree. Whither I go, thou canst not follow me now, but thou shalt follow me afterward. There was a place prepared for the Lord Jesus as well. A place prepared for man in Eden, lost because of human sin. A place prepared in Canaan for the Israelites, forfeited because of human sin. A place prepared for the Lord Jesus. We read in Hebrews 10, don't we? A body thou hast prepared me. A body thou hast prepared me. And there was a place prepared outside the city walls of Jerusalem. And it's a place we call Calvary. A place we call Golgotha. What sort of place would you prepare for the son of the true and living God? I've worked in a, I've worked in a palace. Palaces are beautiful and grand and there's so much to commend them. But that wasn't the sort of place that God prepared for his son. God prepared a, a, a bloodied and rough and humiliating cross outside the city walls of Jerusalem and that's where he prepared for his son why why would the God of the universe prepare that sort of place for his son why because he loves you and because he loves me and went to this extent to to prepare a place for his son on the cross that by his death he might pay the price for my sin for all the wrongdoing that I've ever done. That all that I've ever done and said and thought that was wrong and wicked could be extinguished totally in the blood of the Lord Jesus and paid for in full. What's the alternative? If I was to ask you again, how are you going to respond to the Lord Jesus Christ this evening? Because every single one of you who's here will respond to the Lord Jesus this evening. Now, if you already know and love him, You can simply leave the hall this evening thanking him for who he is and all that he's done for you and rejoicing in the saviour that we have and know and love. And you can seek his grace to serve him more. And yet tonight, if you don't know the saviour, you can do two of two things, one of two things rather. You can accept him tonight. You can speak to David or myself or one of the other people here, a Christian who's brought you, and you can say to them, I need to trust in Christ And I need to do it tonight. Now, every Christian here would just implore you to do that. Because you don't know. Tomorrow's not guaranteed to you. Will you see tomorrow? I don't know. But you must trust in Christ and you must do so tonight. So that's one option. You can receive Christ tonight. You can accept him. He's still accepting people. And he never turns anybody away. Or you can reject him again. 
you can say, I'm sorry, it's not for me. I've heard about the love that you've shown me and I've heard about the extent that you've gone for me, but it's just not for me. And you can reject him again. The question I want to really sort of close with is this. Where is the place prepared for you? Because if you're a Christian tonight, there is a place prepared for you in heaven. But if you will not accept, if you will refuse to accept the offer of love that God has made, there's a place prepared for you as well. Matthew's Gospel in chapter 25 calls it a place prepared for the devil and for his angels. The lake of fire. Hell. If you will refuse to accept the offer of love, that place prepared for the devil and for his angels becomes a place prepared for you as well. So I wonder tonight, as you leave the hall, what will be the place prepared for you in eternity? Will it be the hell prepared for the devil and for his angels? Or will it be that place that the Lord Jesus Christ went to prepare the Father's house? I want to finish uh, by turning you to the book of Acts into chapter 7, please. The book of Acts into chapter 7. And I want to read about a man who I've always found to be an inspiration ever since I was a wee boy. I've loved this character of Stephen. Stephen was the first martyr for the gospel, the first man to die for his confession of the gospel and his preaching of the gospel. And the end of his life was absolutely remarkable. Some people have remarkable last words, don't they? Some people have remarkable last uh, occasions and events and they, they go out with a bang. But here is a man who just has inspired me ever since I was wee. Acts chapter 7. We'll read from verse 54. He's about to be stoned to death. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven. And what did he see, friends, when he looked up into heaven? And saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. And said, and imagine these being some of your last words on earth, and said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Later in verse 59, as he dies, he says, Lord Jesus received my spirit. Luke, the author of the book of Acts, is uh, depicting the death of Stephen in very similar language to the way that he depicted the death of the Lord Jesus. And there's no accident in that. The Holy Spirit leads him to do so. But here we find a man who dies in the most remarkable way. I remember being asked to preach on these verses in a Baptist church up in Culloden uh, in the Highlands. And they were in the habit of providing you with your passage and also a title. They would give you the title for the passage. And I was given this passage and the title that they supplied was Risking Persecution for God. That's a fine title in as far as it goes. But one observation I did make at the time was, in those last few moments, as stones began to rail down, and Stephen began to feel the first stones hitting him that would eventually lead to his death, he was risking nothing. Risking nothing. Because what is risk? Risk is an unknown outcome. An unknown outcome. But as death stared him in the face, he knew He'd seen an open heaven, ready and waiting to receive him. So often we we think about the Lord Jesus seated, don't we? Ephesians and Hebrews, seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. The seated position, the completion of the work of Calvary. And yet here he is, he's standing, almost as if to welcome Stephen into heaven. 
standing in his ongoing work of priesthood and intercession, standing ready to receive his servant into heaven. And friend, tonight, can I say, if you're a Christian tonight, if you're born again, if you can say hand on heart, yes, I've accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, do you know that absolutely nothing is remaining to be done? That heaven is completely ready and waiting for you. And that if for one reason or another, through illness or accident, you were to go to heaven tonight, you would find that it was ready and waiting to receive you. As if the table's been set, the red carpet's been rolled out, and you simply step into a heaven ready and waiting to receive you. I wonder if that's you tonight. I wonder if there's a place prepared in heaven for you. Nothing remains to be done for the Christian. As soon as they have accepted Jesus Christ and their Lord and Saviour and been born again, heaven is ready and waiting for us. Remember, heaven's not a reward. Heaven is a gift received by faith. Heaven is the result of trusting in Christ. And yet tonight, if you're not saved, then there's a place prepared for you and it's that place prepared for the devil and for his angels. And God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And he would long and plead with you that you would come and place your faith and trust in his son, the Lord Jesus. Can I say tonight that if you hear the voice of the Lord Jesus calling you tonight and telling you to follow him, don't put it off any longer, but speak to somebody here tonight and say to them, just gently, just say to them, I want to become a Christian tonight and do so. And every believer here would just long uh, long for you to do that and would plead with you to do that and say, will you place your faith and trust in Jesus? You will never regret it and you will go to a heaven ready and waiting to receive you. So is there a place prepared for you tonight? What place will you choose? Because it's possible for you to go to heaven tonight. If you were to say to me, Ian, do you know that you're going to heaven when you die? I would say, oh, absolutely, 100%, I can tell you, hand on heart, I'm going to heaven when I die. You might say to me, Ian, that's quite arrogant, isn't it? That's quite presumptuous, isn't it? To think that you're going to go to heaven. Do you, do you think you're so good? Do you think you're so righteous? I would say it's got nothing to do with me. It's got absolutely nothing to do with me and everything to do with a man called Jesus who died on the cross of Calvary over 2,000 years ago and he paid for all of my sin. And as a result of that glorious fact, I know through faith and trust in him that I'll go to heaven when I die. So let me leave that challenge with you, friends. Where is the place prepared for you? Amen.